It's always fun being the following act to Leonard Skinner. <laughs> but, uh, okay, we are going to continue in the book of 1 Kings today. Uh, and today's kind of a tough chapter. Well, I guess it isn't, but when I first started studying, I was thinking, wow, this whole chapter is about how pretty much every king in Israel was terrible. And I started thinking, I'm, you know, how do people relate to having a country full of bad leaders? And all of a sudden I thought, I think we're good here. I think everybody's going to be right along with us. So anyway, today we're going to continue on in 1 Kings. Uh, we're in our King series, and we've been studying the time frame when Israel split into two different kingdoms. And I'm going to have to do this quickly, but uh, the two kingdoms were called Israel and Judah. And Rehoboam was king of Judah, and Jeroboam was king of Israel. And to make a long story short, all the kings except one up to this point in Judah were terrible. They had one decent king named Asa, but Israel had terrible luck. Uh, and their side of the division, there was no good kings up to this point. And to be honest with you, I hate to be a spoiler, they're never going to have any either. I mean, just completely terrible kings the whole way. Now last week we, had a, we looked at Asa's life, uh, that's Judah's one good king, and we, we, know we saw no evidence that he ever rejected God, unlike you know, all the other kings. Now it did seem that his pride got in the way for a while, made him a little bitter and angry and disobedient at times, but he never actually rejected uh, God, he just... You know, he just got off track a little bit, but at least he stayed with God the whole time. And if you want to know more about that, you have to listen to last week's sermon. Okay, now this week we're going to be focusing on Israel's legacy of evil kings. I mean, it, it is a legacy of evil kings. As I said earlier, they never had one king that was obedient to God. Not even one, and like I said, they never would. So I titled today's message, A Parade of Evil Kings. Because that's what Israel got to see the whole time in that division of the two countries was a parade of evil kings. Uh, and I think today we're going to discuss the impact that uh, you know, having or following bad leaders can have in your life. And there's also some things we have to remember. It's easy to get swept up in politics and candidates and current events. But realistically, the leadership we should be seeking should be from God. And that's the only consistent leadership we can really depend on. Okay, that's as quick as I can catch you up. Let's jump into today's lessons. First King... Chapter 14 is where we'll start at, but if you remember back in chapter 14, we talked about Jeroboam, right? And, and Jeroboam was, was Judah's king at the time, but he continually disobeyed God. And God kept sending him all these signs and all these warnings, and, and I just kept thinking, gosh, God must see something great in this guy, because I would be so sick of him by now. But God kept warning him time and time again, trying to get him to turn, and he just wouldn't turn back. He continued to, to reject God. He lived in unbelief. And so God said, listen, okay. Now you're going to have to face the judgment. And he said that his entire family would be destroyed and their bodies would be disgraced. Look at this, 1 Kings 14, 9. He says, you also have done more evil than all who were before you. You're going to hear that a lot in Israel. Uh, and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam's every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will uh, make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. You know what dung is? Yeah, it's poop. Okay. Verse 11. Uh, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. So when God was done, he was done. He said, okay, here's, here's the sentence. The sentence is... I'm just going to get rid of your entire lineage because of your wickedness and your evil. I'm going to get rid of your entire family. And then he got pretty, you know, graphic about how that was going to happen and what was going to happen uh, to their bodies. But believe it or not, 
Israel had a king named Basha who was even more evil, even more evil than Jeroboam. If you can believe it, he was more evil than Jeroboam. And God said that was the worst there had been up to that point. And because Basha was also an evil king, God said, you know what? I think you're going to suffer the exact same fate. And I'll explain why he made it the same fate here in a minute. But let's look at 1 Kings 16. We're into today's message. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanai, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you a leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking uh, me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Basha in his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that's going to be important. Remember that. Verse 4, Anyone of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Does that sound familiar? The dogs will eat, and anyone uh, who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did uh, and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers, that means died, and was buried in Tizra, and Elah, his son, became king in his place. So God didn't say when Basha would meet his fate. He just said that he was going to meet his fate and how he was going to meet his fate. Now, if, as you read this, you realize that it doesn't look like Basha really took him seriously. Because he went on doing whatever he was doing before. I mean, if someone came up to you, if someone you knew and trusted to be a good man of God comes up to you and says, hey, God says, stop this or you're going to die and like dogs are going to eat you and stuff. You know, you would think that would get your attention. But he was just so evil and so sold out that he just went on with his life the way it was. He didn't take that, that judgment seriously. He didn't repent and he didn't even remotely change his lifestyle. And after some time passed, he probably thought, I got away with it. You know, God hasn't done anything. I think I got away with it. Here's the thing we have to remember, though. God always keeps his promises. He keeps his promises of discipline. And I found that out oh too well in my life. And he keeps his promises of blessings. He always does. But here's where we get confused. God keeps his promises in his time. In his time. Has anybody here ever felt like God wasn't keeping a promise to you because it hasn't happened when you wanted it to? We've all been there, right? God does keep his promises. He just does it in his time, not in ours. And, and I'm sure you've heard the old saying, what comes around goes around. Right? I'm sure you've heard that old saying. Right? Well, Basha's is thinking, God's forgotten about me. But he's about to find out what that old saying actually meant. Okay, look at this. 1 Kings 16, 7. It said, Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, also came against Basha and his household, both because of the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel at Tizra and reigned two years. His servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now he, this is King Elah, was at Tizra, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azra, who was over the house of Tizra. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. And it came about when he, this is talking about Zimri, became king as soon as he sat on his throne that he killed all the household of Basha. He did not leave a single male, neither uh, of his relatives nor of his friends. Now here's the thing that was a little bit different. Okay, because God, when, with Jeroboam, he destroyed his entire lineage, his entire family. But here, he got rid of his family and his friends. We'll look at that more in a minute. Verse 12, Then Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet. 
for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, uh, his son, which they sinned at, uh, and which they made, in Is- made Israel sin, provoking the Lord of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, uh, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Basha's son Israel took his place as king. Okay, and by this time he's thinking, I got away with it because I'm not even king anymore. You know, my son's taking my place. I'm not even king anymore. Right. But here's the thing. His son was just as evil as he was because they were seeing this parade of evil kings. I mean, there was really no hope. Have you ever had if you ever, I shouldn't even bring this up. But have you ever gone to the voting booth and thought, you know what? Either way I vote, I'm going to have to go home and shower. Anybody ever feel that way? <laughs> you know, imagine this is kind of how they were feeling. Right. Because it didn't matter who it was. They were continually, continually evil. Okay, now I want you to remember something, why this is kind of poetic justice. Basha became king by killing Nadab, Joab, uh, Jeroboam's son. That's how he became king, right? And he was the one that wiped out all of Jeroboam's lineage. He was the one God used to fulfill that prophecy against Jeroboam, right? So now Basha's son would have the exact same thing and that exact same kind of betrayal happen to him. Because his servant, Zimri, and remember, Basha was a servant of Jeroboam. But his servant, Zimri, literally plots against and kills his son the same way he did Jeroboam. And evidently, Elah was this partier because he's at this guy's house or castle or whatever it may be at the time. You know, playing drinking games or whatever because he was hammered. It says he had drank himself just about to death. He was completely drunk, probably couldn't even defend himself. And... Zimri comes in and kills him. And what he doesn't realize was he was unknowingly fulfilling God's promise to Basha. Because then Zimri does what the kings always did at that time. He had all of his lineage killed so that none of them would rise up against him. And the only different thing was, was he also killed his friends. He was a little more paranoid. Right? Now, one thing I don't think we realize here, and I think this is important to take a look at, is the impact that our lives have on others. Because you keep seeing these kings continually evil, continually evil, continually evil. And when it goes outside of the lineage and goes to one of their servants, who's not even in their lineage, they're evil too. So what does this tell you? It tells you that, that they're being influenced by evil, and it's making them evil. And a lot of times, I don't think we understand the influence we have on other people's lives. Right now, now Basia's commitment to rejecting God spread to his kids, it spread to his servants, it spread to his kids' servants. Right? Now, don't take me wrong. They, they obviously have a choice of who they want to follow. They can't blame it all on the king. But leaders wield big influence with the people who follow them, which is kind of dangerous. But leaders wield a lot of influence. right? And so a lot of people just blindly trusted their leaders and followed them. Right? Now, listen, sometimes I think as believers, we forget what kind of influence we have and how we should be influencing the people around us. We should have a positive influence, but there are a lot of times that Christian people get distracted, and we stop using our influence for what God gave it to us for, to bring others to Christ. And I don't know if you've ever known anyone like this, or maybe you've become like this at one time in your life and fought back from it, I hope. But if you ever found yourself that believer who's so distracted with work or so distracted with what's going on in the world or so distracted with something that you no longer are putting the focus on God that you're supposed to. And then one day you realize, my gosh, I haven't even been teaching my kids like I should. You know, I haven't been trying to influence my family like I should. And they look to you. They look to you because you're the only spiritual influence in their life. 
And to be honest with you, there are two scenarios that every person will hate to have to answer to before God. Okay, because here's the thing we forget. Everybody is going to have to answer to God someday. Everybody. And the people who don't believe in God will just be surprised and have to answer to God. Okay, because everyone has to answer for everything you've done and everything you've said. Even believers, we have to answer to God. And there are two scenarios that no one wants to be in when they answer to God. And the first is knowing that you led your children on the wrong path or refused to lead them or were too lazy to lead them on the right path. That is an absolute terrible feeling I think everyone will have in that situation. And the second is knowing that you did the same thing with your family and friends. Now, I've had a unique, you know, but sad opportunity as a pastor to come across people with this regret before they even stood before God. Because I, I knew someone one time, and this person was a believer, and, and they got distracted by several other things. And when they had, you know, small children, they would bring them to Sunday school and things like that. But as they got distracted, they stopped influencing their kids to come. They stopped trying to, you know, speak Christ into the lives of their kids. And remember, they're the king to those kids. They're the influence to those kids. Well, and, you know, we kept talking, saying, hey, listen, I said, you, you need to get back in church, and you really need to make sure your kids are getting familiar with God. And those kids started going down the wrong road. And I begged with that person. I, I begged with them, listen, you've, you've, got, you've got to realize what's happening here. I don't know what's pulled you away from God, but you're, you're missing an opportunity with your kids. Well, one night, they got the phone call that, that their child had been killed. And, the, and they showed up. And, I, you know, that, to be honest with you, this sounds terrible. Maybe it makes me sound like a coward. But when I got that phone call, I was almost afraid to answer it because I already knew what had happened. And when I met with these people, they were telling me, do you think, do you think my son's in heaven? Do you think they went to heaven? I mean, what do you think? And they're, and they're asking me, and I said, listen, he fell into the hands of a just God. And God is so merciful that if someone would call out on him in the last second of their life on this earth, he would forgive them. I said, so know that God loved them right to the last second, and he had that opportunity. But that about drove them crazy. And I thought to myself, that's just kind of a look at how we're going to feel on a larger scale when God shows us all the opportunities we had for people we care about to make a powerful influence in their life, and we missed it. Because we will answer for that someday. Now, these kings of Israel, I mean, you see all the opportunities they could have had to influence a nation. And they just continually rejected it and continually were doing evil. Right? Now, Moving back on, as we go through this, I mean, it's difficult because today's message, literally, I'm trying to find light in this with the kings. There isn't any. Israel had a rough, rough go of it here. Okay, but the thing you have to realize ab about Zimri was he was about to find out some really tough realities about being king. Right? He was about to, you know, find out some tough things. Let's take a look at this. 1 Kings 16, 15. It says, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri... Uh, Listen to this, rain seven days. Yeah, he plotted for murder, killed the most powerful man alive at that time, stole his throne, and reigned for seven days. So the most memorable thing he did in his whopping seven days was kill the king before him and kill all of his family. That is the only thing he did. All right, it says rain seven days at Tizra. Now the people who were camped Against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, the people who were camped heard it, said, Zimri has conspired and has also struck down the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So they're all in the camp. They hear about what he did, and they didn't want him to be king. And so they make their own king 
while they're still at battle in camp. That's kind of letting you know what's going on. Verse 17, Then Omri and all Israel uh, with him went up to Gibbethon and besieged Tizra. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Okay, listen to this. Verse 19, Because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and uh, in sin which he died, making Israel sin. And then it says, Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy which he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So, after taking the throne... And making this huge impact for seven days. Seven days is all he was in there. Everybody said, we never wanted you. We didn't want you as king. Right? And so they made another king. And the king they made was the commander of the armies. He was popular. Okay, I don't know how many of you guys remember. It made me think, you guys remember back during the Gulf Wars when that was all flaring up, how popular Colin Powell was? Remember that? It was kind of like that. He was a commander of the armies that was fighting back the enemies of Israel. So he was popular. And they just made him king, and he went in, right? So Omri, they decided to make him king, and he goes in to take him. But what happens here is Zimri finds out he's coming. And you can see he's a brave guy here because he runs and hides in the king's citadel, and he decides to kill himself, but not before he burns down the king's house, basically. So he sets the house on fire and commits suicide and burns himself up. I mean... You know, it seems like his family would say, could you take him out of the Bible? Because he has a really terrible seven-day reign, and it ends terribly. I mean, this is, this is what happens with it. And people might ask, why did you even preach that? Because it's in there. I don't know. He's seven-day murderer, kill himself. What do, what do you want to say? Not everything ends perfect, right? It's not an after-school special, but, right? That's what he did. He basically executed God's judgment and then killed himself, okay? <laughs> so, I know. When I, was, when I was preparing this sermon, I'm going, I am depressing myself, you know? reading that. But before we move on, there's something we can learn from these evil kings. I want to stop and take a look at this, and this just came over me in, in the middle of the time I was preparing this. We forget about the people of Israel when we look at these kings. You notice that? We forget that there's a nation of millions of people out there, and we're not hearing anything about them. Nothing. Just how evil the kings are. And that really speaks volumes for Israel. Because through all this turmoil in Israel, no matter how evil the king was, the people just acclimated, just accepted it, right? We never hear of any uprising. No one ever, you know, came together with other people and stood up for the true God. I mean, they could have led a revolt. There were millions of them. No matter how big the army was, there were millions of Israelis in that kingdom, and they could have bound together and ran that government out and demanded that they turn back into the nation that follows the one true God. They could have done that. But they just sat quietly and followed their leaders. Like dumb sheep being led off to the slaughter, they just did whatever the leaders wanted them to do. Why? Probably because it's easier to compromise than make a stand. And when I say that, people think to yourselves, oh, that, you know, I knew that's what you were going to say. No, listen. How many times have you thought, it's not worth it? You know, has anybody ever done that? And then later on, you wish you would have taken a stand? But at the time, you think it's just easier just to let it go. It's easier to compromise. You know, and, and what they didn't realize was that when you compromise and accept sin, especially the sin of your leaders or your country, it becomes your sin. Because did you notice every time God was pronouncing judgment on a king, he said, because of the sins that you have done and made my people Israel sin. 
So they were ending up being guilty of the same sins as their leaders because they just sat there and accepted it. So they had to suffer the same judgments that fell on them. The battles, the exchange of kings, uh, the exchange of leadership, they had to deal with all of that. You know, and, and when I thought about it, the same has kind of proven true in the past in our country and in the present in our country. I can't believe how easily we've become a, you know, just enthralled with world politics, with current affairs. And we've become so enthralled with that that we like drift away from our spiritual life to become an active member of all the current affairs and all the politics that's going on right now. You notice that? Is it just me or is right now the most politically charged time anybody here can remember? People who are never politically charged now, that's all they want to talk about. Right? They just want to talk about whether they like one candidate or another. You know, it's, just, it's, it's crazy. It's how quickly we can be pulled aside like that. And like Israel, we just sit back. We don't like what's going on, but we just sit back and do nothing and we acclimate. That's what we do. We just sit back uh, and, and we acclimate. We go along with the leaders and we let them suck us into their crazy worldviews. And the next thing you know, I mean, the world around us is just going nuts because the enemy loves to use politics and political party allegiances to distract and divide people. He loves that. You know why he loves that so much? Because he sees a world full of people that God created worried about who has what allegiance to what man when their real allegiance should be to God and not even worry about that stuff. You know what I mean? But people have no rest if they think of one guy being elected or no rest if the other guy's elected. Like, God wouldn't still be in control either way. Listen, I have my preferences and I'm not going to discuss them with you. Right? But, I'll tell you this much. Whoever it is, whether I like it or don't like it, God is still on the throne. It's not going to change his plan. He's still going to provide for me like he said he was. He's still going to provide for you like he said he was. He's still going to follow every promise he ever made and keep it to a T. He's still going to bring every judgment he ever promised and keep it to a T. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's in the United Nations. God is ultimately in control. And that's where our number one allegiance should be. And right now it's just gone nuts. We've sat back and let our leaders make this nation into, I mean, a, it's unbelievable. Has anybody else stopped watching the news? i got to know. I mean, I can't do it. Even if you watch the news that leans toward your political party, and there's a ton of them, it's still just like chewing on your leg caught in a trap. It's what it's like watching the news. You know what I mean? I go to the local news to watch the weather and quickly change it, you know what I mean, before they start talking about politics, before they start talking about everything that's going on. It's just... It's just unbelievable how much we've compromised our core beliefs. And you can tell we've compromised it by who we allow to run this place. And I'm sorry, it's just that way. I'm not asking you to arm yourselves and, you know, charge the Bastille. I'm just saying, have you forgotten who you are? Because we've even compromised our moral, our moral and ethical beliefs for politics. And, and it's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. I, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm not a big Facebook reader, and now... Even more so. I like to look at the stuff from the church or, you know, my softball organization. That's about it. Okay, I watch Marketplace sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Just in case I can find a deal. But I don't really read anything else because the same idiotic rhetoric I'm seeing on TV, I'm seeing from people who are less educated and less informed on Facebook. And it is driving me up a wall. You know, I, I've, I've seen Christian people posting and, and tweeting and arguing about politics, and I see it all the time. Anybody else see that? 65 posts about whether you like Biden. I'm like, do you have a lot? What do you do for a living? You know, think about this, about whether you like Biden, whether you like Trump. Cracks me up. I see it all the time. Can you imagine? I sit and think to myself. The other day I was thinking, 
which is a rarity. The other day I was sitting and thinking, and I said, you know, imagine if these people, because a lot of them are Christians, and they feel like they're doing their Christian duty by insulting everyone that disagrees with them. I thought, imagine if they took that same passion that they are following man with, that same passion that they are insulting people with, that same passion that they're saying they wish people would be shot, Christian people. We should shoot these people. The same people who are saying those things, imagine if they were that impassioned about loving and sharing Jesus with people. Can you imagine the impact they'd have on this world? If the time they wasted being bitter and angry and political on Facebook, if they used that time to share Jesus and share the love of Jesus, can you imagine? They'd, we'd have another Billy Graham on our hands. There'd be Billy Grahams everywhere if they wouldn't get so enthralled in politics. Now listen, everybody has a right to their view, and I, and I want you to be able to express it. I mean, that, that's what I want. But don't express your views if your views hide God in you. If your views camouflage the fact that you are a Christian, then maybe you need to be quiet. Because if they know more about your politics than your faith, there's a problem. I know, that's a rant, right? But I got the mic, so I can do it. It just seems like we're... We're becoming too much like Israel. Just, we just accept the status quo. We take sides and we fight and we argue and we forget that God is in control. He is in control of everything. He always will be. And despite the pandemics and despite the politics, God is going to remain in control. And nothing's going to happen that God's not in control of. It's just the way it is. Okay, now, I'm done with that rant. We'll move on from that rant. Okay, now, jumping back in. Kind of hard to come back in after that, isn't it? We're going to come back in, and guess what? The message is going to be the next king stinks. First Kings 16.21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Of the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, great names, to make him king, and the other half followed Omri. Okay, so what happened here was basically another group said, wait a minute. You made this Omri, this commander, this big general, you made him king. You didn't ask me. You didn't ask me what I thought. I don't like him. So they had their candidate, right? And they probably had their mudslinging campaigns, right? And so they said, no, we're going to make our guy king. Now, remember, Israel's already split into two. And at this time, Judah has a good king, and they're over here prospering and loving their life, right? And Israel, after being divided once, are dividing again because of politics. Because somebody, one people wanted the commander of the army, the other people wanted this guy, whoever the heck he is. They wanted this guy. It said, but the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed uh, Tibni, the son of Ginnath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. That's all they say about Judah, because Judah's like doing great right now. They're worshiping God. They're back to the way they're supposed to be. They're prosperous. And they're just like looking at Israel going, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they're just constantly fighting. right? But it says, in the 21st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Tizra. So meanwhile in Israel, I feel like this is a TV show. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, all right, there was this battle going on over who was going to be king. You can't make him king. We want our guy to be king. So basically the guy who had more military power became king. Shocker, right? And he ends up getting the throne. Now, something about Omri that kind of cracks me up. It's kind of cracking me up because I see my computer corrected my spelling to Omri. So it's King Omri. Okay, he was evil. As we're going to see here shortly, it says he was the most evil up to that point. 
you're going to hear that again. I mean, he's just evil up to this point, right? He was really evil. He was a terrible, evil guy, did not love God. But he was a good businessman, and he was a good developer, and he knew how to create jobs, and he knew how to make the economy grow, right? 1 Kings 16, 24. It says, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his uh, sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did uh, and the might which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Uh, so Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son became king in his place. Okay, so believe it or not, he was actually more evil than Jeroboam. He was more evil than Basha. He was, more, he was the most evil up to this point. But he was going to be remembered for two things. And even history, secular history, will remember him for these two things. Not how evil he was, but these two things. First of all, he purchased Samaria for a song. He buys this land on a hill for two talents of silver, which is like, you know, buying a four-bedroom house now for 40 grand. You know what I mean? I mean, he just, just bought this for a song, just stole this, basically, right? And he builds the greatest city, one of the greatest cities of that era, because whenever you build a city on a hill, it's easy to defend, it's easy to find, right? So it was easy for them to keep that city safe. It became a hub for, for commerce, and it just became a, a great city. So he was known for that. I mean, he got a great deal and made a, a great city. And the second thing he was known for was he was one of the most prosperous, evil, wicked, terrible kings they had. He really made them prosper, right? He, he made them a great, strong economy, right? I and mean, really flourished. And you know what's funny is, again, Israel did nothing. You know why? Because just like today, people don't mind evil leadership as long as they profit. You ever notice that? People don't mind if, you know, if the leadership's doing something terrible as long as they're getting you know, raises and the economy's doing well. That's what he'll be known for. But what we're going to find out, and I've got to watch my time, what we're going to find out is that Omri really becomes a kind of a blip on the radar screen because if you can believe it or not, he was the most evil up to that point, and we've heard some evil ones. But he's about to bring a son into this world who would be the most wicked man anyone had ever seen and what's even worse was he had a wife who was probably more evil than him which happens more often than not i'm just kidding i'm just kidding no he had he the man's name let's see how many of you have heard this name ahab and not the whale guy okay ahab anybody know his wife's name jezebel have you ever heard that name it's funny, when I was a kid, when my mom, when my sisters would have too much makeup on, she'd go, take off all that makeup, Jezebel. And I'd sit to myself and go, was Jake, Jezebel, and Avon salesman in the Bible? I don't understand. Right, but this is one, some of the most evil people. I'm going to try to get us started on this. I've got to watch my time. But I'll get us started on this a little bit because we're going to spend some time talking about this. Now, one thing, another thing Omri did was he actually, his son stayed in power for a long time. So he's probably the first legacy Howbeit evil and terrible and murderous and godless, it was a long legacy. Right there's something. But he kind of had a decent legacy. Let's look at this. First Kings 16, 29. 
It says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Here again, I just crack up and I read that because they don't have anything to say about Judah. It's doing well. They're following God. They're like, oh yeah, there's Judah. They're doing great. Anyway, right, it says the uh, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria uh, 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen to this. More than all who were before him. That's starting to get old, isn't it? Verse 31, it came about as though it had been uh, a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabel, which is a great name, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. How many people remember hearing that, that about that god, Baal? Okay, you'll hear a lot about him from this point on. Right, so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of, uh, of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel, uh, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay. Caught you up with all that reading. Now, so Ahab was a king who followed, I mean, he followed in evil footsteps. And, I mean, he was, he was the varsity when it came to evil. All the other ones were JV and freshmen. He was the starter on varsity when it comes to being an evil king. And we're going to look at a lot of the stuff he did, right? So he reigns for 22 years from like 874 B.C. to 854 B.C. And the most wicked king they had ever experienced. I mean, the things that would happen, and we're going to see them as we start moving on. The things that would happen, he was so evil that God literally has to send two prophets, amazing prophets that you've heard of many times, Elijah and Elijah, to deal with this idiot, right? I mean, it's just amazing some of the things he has to deal with in dealing, but he's the most wicked king they've ever experienced, the most wicked, right? And he was so wicked, it said that he looked back himself over Jeroboam and all the other people that, you know, God said was the worst up to that point. And kind of laughed and said, their sins are trivial. I'll beat that. That was his attitude. He looked at the sins before him and he's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. He wanted to be more evil. He wanted to be the worst. I mean, he liked the bad guy role. But there's more. The worst person in Israel's history has to have the biggest winch for a wife. And he found her. Right? And it sounds like the reason he started worshiping Baal was, as we read this, there's one thing you're going to find out about Ahab. He is the picture of being henpecked in the Bible. I mean, she owned him. Whatever she told him to do, he did. It makes me think of Bill and Hillary. No, I shouldn't say that. Anyway, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. She owned him. Whatever she said to do, he did it. Right? Whatever he said to do... That's what happened. That's why he started worshiping Baal. It's why he built all these temples, right? I mean, built it right in the, in the capital, right? But the evil that's going to happen with these two, the, the, the evil leadership they're going to bring in is going to end up with some amazing stories where God really gets to show himself. But we can't look at this today. I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always like to give an invitation, no matter what the message is about, because we believe the Word of God is powerful. And if there's someone watching online or, or listening online, God knows your heart. But if you're here among us and you want me to pray for you, just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. I won't point you out or chase you down. Bless those people.
And I want to pray for you because, listen, there's one promise God made that he keeps immediately. And that is the moment that you believe that what his son did was enough to guarantee your eternal life, you have it. That exchange is immediate. And you don't have to be good enough. And you don't have to be from the right lineage. You don't have to have money. You just have to have the desire to want to be his. So I'm going to pray for those people today. And I also want to pray for believers because as I was reading through all this, and believe me, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is going to be tough to preach because this is just about a bunch of terrible, derelict kings. But I kept thinking about the people that just allowed their nation to become godless and immoral to the point of horrible atrocities that we'll study as we go on. And I kept thinking, gosh, it kind of sounds like us. So believers, I just want to pray that we never allow ourselves to be so quiet and so acclimated that we let our nation turn into something we're ashamed of. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for everything that you do, and I thank you for the love that you've shown us. I thank you that you've made a way for us to have eternal life free of charge. And I thank you that you don't expect us to earn it or deserve it. You know we can't. You made it easy. You desire to have a relationship with us so desperately that you sent your own son to die on our behalf so that if we could believe in the price he paid for our eternal life, if we could trust that, you promised to give us eternal life. I thank you for that promise, and I pray if there's someone that needs to make that commitment today that whatever's holding them back, you move it out of the way so they could make that. And if they make that decision, I pray they reach out to us or reach out to someone near them that's a believer. Because, God, we need more people in the kingdom. And, God, for those of us who are believers, I, we live in a crazy world, and you know that. But we know the solution to any problem is you. God, let us remember our first allegiances to you. Let us remember that our job here is to love and to lovingly lead, not to be bitter and angry. And God, we just pray that you would use us and use us powerfully so that we can draw people to you and enlarge the borders of your kingdom. We just pray, God, that as we leave here today, you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. Lord, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray, God, that, that you would give us the ability to come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.